The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open to Mark chapter 15. We'll look at verses 21 to 32, Lord willing, this morning. Mark 15. I had never heard that uh, that verse mocked his prophet, priest, and king. Is that new? Sort of. We have. Maybe I have heard it before. Yeah. Uh, was okay. Well, great. Goes goes wonderful with our text this morning, and uh, let me just invite you to turn there. Let me read this, and then we'll launch in the passage this morning is uh, largely about this mocking of Jesus. And uh, I've entitled the sermon this morning, Why Would Anyone Want to Follow Jesus? Why Would Anyone Want to Follow Jesus? Let's begin reading Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in, in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Gogotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers. One on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring this text to life for us this morning for your own glory. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. Why would anyone want to follow Jesus? Uh, It's an urban legend. I know it's not a true story, but it is a story that has been repeated multiple times as as factual. And it's the story of the introduction of the Chevy Nova into Spanish speaking countries in the 60s or 70s. Somewhere in there, uh, the story goes that Chevy introduced the Nova into certain Spanish speaking countries and they just couldn't figure out why their sales weren't weren't going real well. No one was buying the car. Well, they did a little research and found out that Nova in Spanish means doesn't go. <laughs> and so they changed the name, legend has it, and, uh, and sales then begin to take off. The, the point of the story, whether it's fictional or, or fact, is that it, it matters. You know, I mean, who wants a car that doesn't go? I mean, nobody wants that. You know, save your money. We come to a passage this morning, and I think largely the point of the passage is who wants to follow a man who, yes, started well and had a great run, but crashed and burned 
so publicly in the end. Who would ever want to follow a man like that? Well, we see in this passage, we see Simon of Cyrene compelled to carry his cross. And we're going to walk through this passage today backwards, if you will. We're going to walk backwards from verse 32 back up to verse 21 and bring this point home. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus is reviled by the lawless, reviled by the lawless. Here in verse 27, the Bible says that uh, they crucified him with two robbers, one on his left and one on his right. I don't want you to miss the connection between this. That back in earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 10, verse 37, do you remember the, the request of James and John? James and John came to Jesus one day and said, Jesus, would you do for us whatever we would ask of you? Well, what would you have me to do for you? Would you grant for us each to sit by your side, one on your right and one on your left when you enter into your glory? And Jesus' response to them was, you don't know what you're asking Can you drink the cup that I am prepared to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism for which I am to be baptized with? And here we see come to fruition. There are two on his right and his left when he is coming into his glory. And it is not James and John, but it is two criminals, two robbers, the Bible says. And this is exactly what Jesus warns James and John about. These robbers, another word for it, it really should be translated insurrectionists. In our day and age, it would be terrorists. Jesus was crucified with a couple of terrorists flanking him. This is like bin Laden. Others involved in 9-11 being crucified beside Jesus on either side. It doesn't get any more lawless than these, than terrorists. It's probably the worst in our society that you, can, I could, you and I could think of. Maybe we could put child molesters up there with it or whatever else we could think of. But this is pretty serious that Jesus here is crucified with these worst of the worst. Right up to the end, these terrorists, these insurrectionists, at least one of them is joking with the crowd and reviling Jesus, calling him to save himself. One of the other gospels says, save us and save yourself and come down from the cross if you are the Messiah. He's reviling. And this is the way it is. I would challenge you with the lawless of today. Um, the lawless, those who live hellbound lives, wayward living. I've heard many of them joke about hell. As if hell is something simply going to be this place that the party will continue, that we will all then finally be together, they would say. I'll party with all my friends in hell. It's going to be a great time. Well, the Bible paints a very different picture than that. And this is the way it is with lawless. They never take seriously the claims of Christ or the, the, the coming pending judgment. And the reality is what I want you to see today is that this These two criminals on either side, particularly the one that continues right up to the end to revile Jesus, is not so far from a picture of you and I. Just as they had committed murder, just as they had rebelled against Rome, just as they had thieved and whatever else the case may be, you and I have as well. 
You say, well, wait a minute, you don't know me. You don't know that I've done those things. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen anything. I've never rebelled against my nation. You may not have rebelled against your nation, but in your sin, you have rebelled against God's rightful authority over you. And the lawless, those who are not yet recipients of the grace of God, revile him, treat him as insignificant. Isaiah 53, 6, Ethan read it beforehand. This is our verse of the month that we're going to work on memorizing together. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. You say, well, I'm I'm a pretty good person. You can only say that you are a pretty good person when you compare yourself to another person. But you compare yourself to the thrice holy God. And you cannot say that you are pretty good at anything. You can only say that I am desperately wicked, deserving of whatever comes my way. I want to share with you a story out of a book. I don't do this often, but I want to read for you a part of this. And I thought the graphic nature of this was was pretty good. It's not graphic in that it's, I don't think, bloody and gory or anything like that. But it deals with um, the killing off of multiple Jews. I made a comment last week in the text where uh, the Jews have wrongly sometimes been been victims of anti-Semitism based on some of the passages. When when the Jews cried out, let his blood be on us and on our children. They've been wrongly the victims of a lot of anti-Semitism. Now, I want to share this with you. Uh, Dr. Eli Wiesel, or Wiesel is a Nobel Peace Prize recipient and a Jewish survivor of Auschwitz, the most horrific death camp of World War II. Dr. Weissel's life mission has been to bring Nazi war criminals to the bar of justice and to remind the world of the immeasurable evil of the Holocaust. When Dr. Weissel speaks, you can hear the wrenching cries of the innocent in his voice. He honors his people and all mankind by demanding justice and warning us never again. On January 27, 1995, Dr. Weissel joined other Jewish survivors of the Auschwitz of Auschwitz in a ceremony to pay tribute to Hitler's victims on the 50th anniversary of Auschwitz liberation by the Russian army. As the group gathered around the remains of the concrete crematorium, Weissel prayed, God, merciful God, do not have mercy on murderers of Jewish children. Do not have mercy on those who created this place. Do not forgive the people who murdered here. Strong prayer, isn't it? You ever been in a prayer meeting where you've heard someone pray, God, do not be merciful to someone? It's unexpected. Well, John Enser, who wrote this book, The Great Work of the Gospel, goes on and he says, how should God answer this prayer? To Dr. Weissel, a merciful and just God must be able to get angry and punish or he is neither merciful nor just. Dr. Weissel is right. Justice demands that the murderers of millions of innocent Jewish children be cast into the hottest parts of hell's fire. But now the slope gets slippery. Once it is established that a just God cannot fail to punish the wicked, how will anyone escape? Even victims of sin are also perpetrators of sin. And the just wages of sin is death. In spite of this, we know that God has pardoned wicked sinners. And we may assume that some of them are repentant murderers, even of children. How does God justify this? 
God would be wrong to pardon a Nazi war criminal or any other sinner, including me, you and even Dr. Weissel. Based on what we have learned so far about the life of Christ, God's answer to Dr. Weissel and all of us caught in the pinchers between a desire for mercy and a love for justice is the cross of Christ. You say, I have never done anything deserving of death. There are people all around us that have. They've, they've murdered. They've gone into innocent people, into their homes, and they've, they've killed them in the middle of the night. They've done all sorts of wicked and evil things. I've never done anything close to that. I don't deserve anything like that. But when you compare yourself to a holy and just God, yes, you do. And God's answer to that being able to forgive someone who in your eyes is worthy of that and even to forgive someone who is not worthy of that is the cross of Christ. We see here the lawless, reviling Jesus. And how could God ever forgive them? He forgives them in the cross. We walk up from verse 32 and we step backwards and we go back to verse 31. In verse 31, the Bible says, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. It's as if they've not remembered anything. Do you remember as we've walked through Mark, how many times Jesus, Jesus was with them? They followed him. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people of the day, they were there and they would think to themselves something critical of him. And Jesus, showing for us his divinity, would read their thoughts and answer their questions that they never spoke out loud. And here the Bible says at the foot of the cross, while he is there on the cross, that they say to themselves, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ come down. How hurtful this must have been. You and I remove ourselves from this. But Jesus here being altogether able to save himself. Hearing the taunts and the mockery of these religious leaders, even in their thoughts, how it must have made him want to come down. You ever you ever been there and you heard someone talking about you? They didn't know you heard them talking about you. How did it make you feel? Not good. That's right. Did you react Sometimes we do, don't we? Sometimes we let loose. We unleash on them. Jesus could have very well unleashed on them. The Bible says that he could have at that moment called 72,000 angels even then to deliver him. I thought about that. Don't you think that those 72,000 angels were sitting on go? Don't you think their jealousy for the holiness of God and for his worship and praise where they were just at the edge of heaven, just waiting for him to say, come. They would have come in an instant. And Jesus hears their thoughts and their mockery and then say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ come down. It's resiliency of his soul that held him to the cross. That's why he could say in John no one takes my life. I lay it down. They mock him. They say with much contempt, with much contempt, let the Christ come down. If he comes down, then we'll see and believe. Ironically, if Jesus would have come down from the cross, no one would have ever seen nor believed. It is 
in the cross. It is in his resiliency to stay there, to absorb the wrath of God, to set us free from sin and death, to take away the blindness from our eyes, to open our stopped ears. It all rests in the cross. If he comes down from the cross, they are wrong. They will never see or believe. And by the way, they had had more than enough opportunity, hadn't they? They had seen and heard more than you and I ever have. We sit here today. There's not everyone, but multiple people across this room have never once seen Jesus in the flesh. We've never seen him raise anyone from the dead. We've never seen him heal anyone from sickness. We've prayed and seen people get well, but we've not seen him in the flesh. Speak to someone and see them get well. They saw it. And what makes them think that if he comes down, they would then see and believe. Later on, when Jesus did raise from the dead and he had appeared to the disciples, the Bible says that when he appeared the first time to them, that Thomas wasn't there. And eight days later, Thomas is there and Jesus shows up again. And Thomas had said, unless I see him and put my hand in the scar and the nail scar in his hand and place my hand into the wound in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus shows up and takes the hand of Thomas and places it into the nail print. And Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus words to him are blessed are you, Thomas. More blessed are those who never see Yet believe. They had seen more than enough to believe, but they never would. They were blind. They were blinded by the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world system. They mocked Jesus. The religious person of today is intellectually honest. Religion is all about. Let's be honest. Religion is all about um, Doing good things, working ourselves to God, making ourselves right, isn't it? That's what religion is by nature, by definition. It is it is me doing whatever I need to do in order to be accepted by God. That's what religion says. That's why you see people in all parts of the world who at certain times of the day kneel toward a certain direction and pray so many times a day. That's why you see them eat certain foods. That's why you see them give certain alms. It's why you see them make sacrifices and cut themselves and all sorts of things. It's because they are trying to appease God, trying to work themselves toward God. Religion says that I can be good enough. That I can do enough good things that I can I can be involved in church activity. That I can be enlightened or educated enough to get it. And if the. Religious person is intellectually honest. At the end of the day, they will tell you that all of their religious activity leaves them empty. It leaves them unsure. If you go and you interview someone who is in a religion other than Christianity. Christianity is not a religion, by the way. In the world's eyes, it is. But if you interview someone in another religion, they will use the words, well, I hope so. I hope it's enough. I I hope Allah will be pleased. I hope this will work to my favor. But do you understand that when Christ went to the cross and he died there and he was placed into the tomb and he was brought out after three days alive. And when you turn from your sins and trust him as your only hope of salvation, there is no I hope so. 
You have the confidence of God on your side. If God were not pleased with the sacrifice of Christ, then he would still be in the grave today. But the father was pleased and fully satisfied, and he called Jesus from the grave back to life. They the lawless reviled him. The religious mocked him. And then here is a word that we don't often use, but society derided him. Derided him. I was sharing this with Lana yesterday and she said, are you really going to use the word derided? I didn't pick it. The Bible did. It's there. If you've got an ESV, it's there. Verses 29 through 30. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now they're not speaking to themselves. They're not thinking these thoughts, but they are audibly, out loud, saying these things to Jesus. Jesus nailed to the cross and they are walking by. And the Bible here uses an expression. It says they were wagging their heads at him. You ever had anybody wag your head, their head at you? You ever had anybody look at you and go? My mom used to do that to me a lot, you know? You know, now I find myself doing it to my kids, you know? That's what they're doing. They're walking by and they're looking at him and they're saying, you who claim to you're going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're mocking him and reviling him and deriding him. It's a it's a term that means just shame. They are just putting themselves in a position of self-righteous judge. It's what the friends of Job did when they came and they tried to postulate why these things were happening to Job. And Job said, if I were in your position, I could also say to you the things that you're saying to me. And I could also wag my head back at you. But you're not in my position. It's what the nations around Jerusalem did when Jerusalem fell. They wagged their heads at Jerusalem. It's now what they are doing to Jesus. They're wagging their heads at him. He has become a mockery. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. He was despised and scorned. He had no form that we should consider him to be lovely or surely not the son of God. He was rejected. We considered him to be cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So he's hanging on a tree. How in the world could he possibly be the Messiah? He is cursed of God. They say you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Ironically, that's exactly what was happening before their eyes. You know, they thought... Listen to me. They thought he meant that building made of stone. But all the while he was talking about his body, his flesh. He had said to them, you destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And he was prophesying even then that he would be crucified and he would be buried. And on the third day he would rise from the dead. And now they are mocking him and wagging their heads at him. And what they what he prophesied is exactly what is happening before them. The temple at this point is being destroyed on the cross. And three days later, it would be rebuilt. It's Psalm 22, one through eight coming to life. Psalm 22 says some a thousand years. David wrote before this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
from the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest, yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me. They wag their heads. There's that phrase again. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A thousand years ahead of time, it is prophesied that they would walk by and wag their heads at Jesus in disgust, that they would deride him. And now, a thousand years later, it is coming to fruition. Not only that, but the Bible says that he was not just reviled by the lawless. He was not just mocked by the religious. He was derided by society, but he was crucified by government. He was crucified by government in verses 22 through 27. I won't, won't read them again, but let me walk you through crucifixion. As he's there coming out, as they led him in verse 20, um, as, as they lead him out to crucify him, he would have been put in the middle of four Roman soldiers. Those four Roman soldiers would have surrounded him and, and proceeded out. And um, he would have had on his back the patibulum or the crossbeam. They were forced to carry this crossbeam. And remember, his back has already been ripped to shreds. I'm not talking about little wounds. I'm talking about flesh so deep that ribs appear and entrails appear. And they placed this patibulum, the crossbeam of, of, of what he would be hung on, across his back to carry. And not nailed him to it yet. He's holding this thing, balancing it on that raw, open flesh. It weighs approximately 100 pounds, and they lead him out. There would be a soldier somewhere in front that would carry a placard. Either the placard would be carried by the soldier, or he would have it hung around his neck. And on that placard would be the the charge, the inscription. Jesus here, the soldier, is leading this pack of four with Jesus in the middle, carrying this crossbeam. And on the plaque says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They would have taken the longest route possible. They did this intentionally. The Romans did this because they wanted as many people in the empire to see this as possible because it was a pretty good deterrent against breaking the law. Don't you think you see Jesus walking through in the condition he's in carrying his own cross? It would make you want to walk the line. Anybody get caught by the policeman sitting up here on 101 this morning? I came over the hill. And good thing I wasn't doing faster than the speed limit. I sometimes would have been. My son immediately said, Dad, there's a cop. He, he knows, you know. And what ran through my mind is he sat there and I thought, what if he would have pulled out? What if he'd have pulled out and came in behind me, turned the lights on, I'd have pulled over right here on 101, probably right about the twin palmetto over there. And I'm sitting there right before Sunday school and all church members are just passing by, seeing the pastor pulled over by a policeman getting a ticket. I determined that what I would do is I would come in and I would take a love offering to pay for the ticket. (laughs) When you see a policeman sitting on the side of the road, what does it immediately want make you want to do? Slow down. Even if you're not speeding, it makes you slow down. You let off the gas or tap the brakes. 
Why? Because it is a deterrent. And him walking through this longest route so that people would see him is a deterrent. It is done intentionally by the Romans. The Bible says that they offered him wine, sour wine mixed with myrrh. This was not simply, I've, I've heard preachers use this when it says they, they offered it to him, but he didn't take it. They've used this to preach against alcohol. That's ridiculous. That's not what this is. This is based on Proverbs 31, verse 6, where it talks about that, that women are to, to give to um, those who are suffering and dying this narcotic mixture so that they can avoid the pain. And what they're doing here is they are offering this to him and Jesus wants to face it. He wants to be clear headed. He wants to absorb all of the wrath of God with a clear mind and he refuses. He rejects it. It is not a time to preach against alcohol. It is the clear headedness of our Savior. The Bible says at the foot of the cross, after they had nailed him there and they would take spikes and they would drive those spikes through his hands when they would get there. They would, they would take these spikes, they would, they would lay him down on the ground. This, this cross beam that he had carried, that Simon, they recruited Simon to carry also for him. They would, they would drop it to the ground and they would force him down on it. And they would take spikes and they would drive those spikes through his hand. Probably the heel of his hand, which was still considered the hand. So no bones would be broken and it would go between the, the wrist bones and the, and the base of the palm. And then they would, they would hoist that patibulum up with him dangling from it, held only by those nails. And they would hoist that up and they would attach it to either a standing post already. Or they would attach it on the ground and they would raise that and drop it into a hole like you've seen um, on Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Either way, it's still just as horrifying. When they've done this to him, then when they've raised him up, they would take another spike and they would drive it through his feet. And he's left there to to try to breathe as best as he can to breathe. He has to pull up to let his lungs take in air. And then he slowly drags, drops down the cross and his back scraping against that wooden cross the whole time. All the while. At the foot of the cross, there are these soldiers who are now, they've taken his clothes because he is probably at this point as naked as one could be, hanging on the cross in public shame. And they are gambling for his clothes. They are dividing them up. They are casting lots for them. This is prophesied in Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 18. That same psalm that I read to you earlier. In verse 18, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, the Jews have been accused a lot of times of being the ones who have crucified Jesus. And largely, for a good part of it, they are responsible. Not Jews in general. We, we should not be anti-Semites. Uh, but this crucifixion should never be confused with anything but a Roman punishment. Government here crucifies him. The Romans, he is in their way. And this is what government will do, right? Government really, if, if religion is all about works and making yourself right before God, government is really all about control. And Pilate here, he sees this Potential riot on his hands. And this one, this one can be 
expunged and, and the whole thing will be taken care of and there will be peace restored to the empire. And so in the government's eyes, if this one has to be sacrificed to, to still maintain control, we are willing to do that. We we should pray for our government. We should pray for our officials. We should submit to them. I'm not telling you to go out here when you do see a policeman. Just just run on by. Him. Don't pull over. Just keep going. We should submit. We should pay taxes. We should do all of those things. We should give glory to God for those who rule over us. But we should never think for an instant, for a second. That our government. Is going to be loyal to Jesus Christ. It's not it's not their DNA. It's not who they are. We see this just recently when the current administration um, forces religious organizations, um, Christian organizations even to provide health care that would include access to abortions and birth control. They're not they're not thinking like we are. The Bible is not their mandate. It's not their authority. We should never think for an instant that if Jesus gets in their way. That they won't crucify him as well. Pray for your government. Submit to the government. But we have a greater authority. His name is Jesus. We see here in this passage as we walked backwards through it, Jesus is reviled. He is mocked, he is derided, and he is ultimately crucified. Why in the world would anyone ever want to follow this man? Why? We see in verse 21 at the very top of this passage. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon here is compelled to carry his cross at first. Yes, by force at first. Yes, this was an inconvenience to Simon. He had come to celebrate Passover. He had come not to carry some criminal's cross. He had come like everyone else to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He was forced by the Romans. The Romans could take a a Jewish person and do with them really kind of whatever they wanted to do. But he was forced To carry this man's cross, he was repulsed by it. He was put off by it. He was inconvenienced by it. But somewhere along the way, he was compelled for a different reason. The Bible gives us a clue. We don't know definitively, but in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, there is listed there a man who is part of the church. And his name is Simeon, close to Simon. He's of Niger, which is right about where Cyrene would be. Northern Africa here. It's a clue. We say, well, that's maybe a stretch. Maybe this is the same guy. Maybe it's not. You're right. Why else, though, would Mark here include this detail that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Unless Alexander and Rufus were known by the early Christians. I, I think what happened here is. Simon takes this cross and it's an inconvenience. He doesn't want to. But what's he going to do? They've got swords and spears. So he takes the weight of this cross and he begins to carry this thing for Jesus. Maybe he gets all the way to Golgotha. He gets there and he drops the the cross beam. And along the way, maybe he stops and he, he just stays. He's invested now. 
I mean, this blood of this man has transferred from the patibulum on now to Simon. He watches this man be crucified. He watches them revile and mock and deride him. He watches them crucify him. And along the way, I believe that the Spirit of God breathed life into him. And he saw that this man was no mere man, but he was indeed the Christ of God. Don't miss Mark's connection between carrying his cross and real discipleship. Back in Mark 8:34, he says there in, in chapter 8, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a call to discipleship. And I think Mark here includes it in his gospel so that you and I would see some of what it is to follow after Christ. We live in a world in a day where we're led to believe that following Christ should cost us nothing. That it's okay that we can be back row Christians. No, no offense to those of you who are sitting on the back row. We live in that day, though, where Christianity is equated with simply coming to church. A.W. Tozer is, I think, the uh, responsible for this quote. He said, worship God one day a week and no one will notice. But worship God seven days a week and people will think you are strange. If people don't think you are strange and you're following after Christ, then you may need to ask yourself, am I really following after Christ? In the end, there's not one segment of this world system that does not revile, mock or deride Jesus. The reality is that this world system would do today the same thing it did 2000 years ago. Crucify him. Yet you and I are called to follow him and to take up his cross and follow him. It will not be popular. It will not be accepted. Discipleship is not synonymous with being happy or being popular. The gospel is offensive. If the gospel that you are living and preaching is not offensive, then it is a different gospel. It is, it is offensive by its very nature. People are selfish. They are wayward. They are dead. They are following after the course of this world. And when you come to them and you present the gospel to them, the gospel is an offense to the very way of living. If you and I are dependent on something within us or some force from without to compel us to follow him, then our following will be a short trip. But if we are recipients of God's love in Christ, God's justice poured out on Christ, then we are made able to persevere or endure in following him. The world, don't, don't, you know, the world would say that it's foolish to follow this man. Who would want to follow this man who crashed and burned in such a violent, such a public way at the end? Yes, he said some good things. Yes, he did a lot of good. But in the end, he was killed. But you and I know the story doesn't end there. He came out of the tomb, that he's alive now, that he's at the right hand of the Father, that he's called us to him. 
and what the world calls foolish, we must reject. We must endure the suffering and the shame. We must count ourselves when that when we when we encounter those things, we must count ourselves to be blessed of God, to share in the sufferings of Christ. The world says it's foolish. But I can tell you this, based on the authority of God's word, it is the wisest thing that you will ever give your life to. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we today want to come to this text and say, God, do with us what you will. God, today I say to you, I beg of you, God, be merciful in this place. God, for Christians all over this room who are living lives that are nominal at best in following you. God, today I pray, God, that you would spur us out of that. God, that you would bring us to lives that chase after you with hot pursuit. God, I pray that today that you would call believers in this room to live for you and to follow you and to deny self and take up the cross and follow you regardless of what comes. God, when we are also reviled and mocked and derided and even crucified, God, I pray that we would have the same resolve to the power of the Holy Spirit to not come down but to live at the cross there is nothing that we can do nothing that we can do to add to what you've already done you have done it all but God because you have done it all God compel us in that to carry your cross I pray this in Jesus name Amen This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.